Welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods, aka William Moore, the author of Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tale series, and co-founder of Majavi. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, I want to help you dig through the weeds and get to the roots of what may be holding you back from growing and succeeding in your industry. The mindset when you have to overcome when things don't go your way. So join me in the woods. Welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods. You know, some people know me as William Moore, the author of Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tale series and co-founder of Majave. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, join me in the woods. Today I have a very special guest. I've, I've actually been uh, really excited about this interview. I have Lisa Russell with me. She is a I was actually reading through her information, a lot of this stuff, I actually had to Google myself. She's an MPH, which is a Master's in Public Health, an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. She's part of a very select group of people, won the award with the Nickel Fellowship, uh, the QF screenwriter. She works with the United Nations non-governmental organization as an artist curator, TED speaker, Fulbright specialist, and a founder of Create 2030, which I really want to get into later, where she actually, the, the work kind of lies at the intersection of art and social justice and global development. So welcome, Lisa. How are you doing? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. And hi from Mombasa, Kenya. <laughs> I know we have a, quite a time difference, but I'm excited to be here. Oh, yeah, I definitely. And like I said, I, I don't think I've ever said it, but I'm actually in Medellin, Colombia. You, you may or may not have known that I'm, I haven't been in, in the States for a while. Uh, so I guess we'll kind of get started. You have a very decorated career, and I know none of these awards happened overnight. You, you actually had to put in the work. When you first started, I know you were going through school. You, you, you received your master's of public health, which at the time might not have been the, the latest and greatest career, but it came, it, it paid off, uh, especially for the type of work that you do now. When you first started, did you know this is what you wanted to do? Like, how did you go about embarking down this path? Because you've definitely taken a niche route, but it's something that us artists absolutely need. Yeah, it works. Um, I didn't see the vision when it was happening. As you were asking before, did I have it planned or did I wing it? I completely winged it um, because I also, you know, before even getting the master's in public health, I was extremely conflicted on what it was I wanted to pursue as a career. And that's because I sort of straddled being an, an artist and a creative kid when I was young. Like I was a dancer, I painted, I was I drew, I was in gymnastics, and I excelled at a lot of different things. But I grew up in a immigrant household. I'm Asian American with a mother that didn't finish the eighth grade, who was a waitress working two jobs to support us. And she said, I did not work this hard for you to pursue a career as an artist. You need to get a real job. And so that was always my, you know, I know there's so many people who know this, who, who have mothers like this. So education was a, was a big priority for my mother who never completed high school. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so when it was time for me to really decide what I wanted to do, I knew that I wanted to like do good in the world and to help people. I knew this. So 
even though my heart was in my hip hop troupe, because I was a hip hop dancer, I was oh. pursuing pre-med. Actually, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor in the ER. Um, and so that was sort of what I studied. I was volunteering in the hospital, um, loved my work. I was, you know, did my MCATs at Yale University through this like diversity program or whatnot, submitted my applications to medical school, got my secondaries back and then freaked out. I completely had a freak out. And I was like, I cannot commit the next seven years of my life to likely stay in the same area that I've lived in for the majority of my life doing the exact same thing. So I said, let me take a year off and I'll just go do something different. So I packed up my bags, jumped in the car with my boyfriend at the time, drove cross country and ended up in Boston. And I figured Boston would either make me or break me for a doctor because it's like a medical haven, right? And I was doing all sorts of interesting stuff. Like I worked at a sleep lab <laughs> at Harvard, which was crazy. There's stories upon stories for that. Um, but I was simultaneously wanting to keep up my pre-med stuff. So it didn't look like I was just kind of taking this year off and not doing anything. So I took some uh, night courses at Harvard and one of them was a biology of HIV AIDS course. And they were talking about AIDS in terms of like biology, organic chemistry, like, you know, data, this or whatever. But during the class, a professor showed a 15 minute video of another professor at Harvard who started talking about health in the way that I sort of understood health. And that was about social determinants like ethnicity or gender or, you know, poverty. And it, it was international. And he was the first uh, director of the Global AIDS Program, now known as UNAIDS. And in those 15 minutes, he blew my mind. He was talking about, you know, HIV AIDS in refugee camps. He was talking about HIV AIDS um, you know, in, in Africa and, and just really, it just did something where I was like, this is what I was more interested in. I had run a girl's group home. I had done um, CPR and HIV AIDS classes for homeless shelters. Like I had been more of the social whatever. And it wasn't the labs or the science that interested me in medicine. It was working with people. Right. So I decided I wanted to learn more from him. So I went to Harvard and I said, listen, I want to take this class. <laughs> um, I'm not a Harvard student. I'm taking night classes, but I'll pay this nine hundred dollars for me to take this class from this amazing professor. The woman said, well, I'm sorry, you don't work at a hospital. You're not a student here at Harvard. You're not this. You're not this. Sorry. Can't take a class at Harvard. Close the window in front of my face. And I was just like, but I'm willing to give you nine hundred and fifty dollars and not even ask credit for it. I just want the inspiration and the in information. I ended up calling the professor and I told him what had happened. And he was just such a, in a rebel in his own way. But he said, why do you want to take my class? What is it that you're interested in? So I told him and he's like, this is what you need to do. You need to come to Harvard and go to the School of Public Health. Walk past the security guard like you know where you're going. Make a left. Go downstairs. I'll give you the books. You're welcome to take my class for free. <clears throat> and that changed my whole career trajectory. Still nothing about filmmaking, still nothing about curation, but it now put me on the path to doing more international work. And I wanted to travel <clears throat> because I grew up fairly sheltered. I didn't get on a plane until I was 18. I didn't see a lot of the world, um, you know, because my mother was working all the time. So, so I decided to, um, you know, get my master's in public health instead because he taught at the School of Public Health. And I landed my first job working in a war zone. So I was in Kosovo and Albania in 1999, and it was sort of there that I got 
introduced to how significant stories are in global development, um, both in terms of how helpful they can be, but more importantly, how how harmful they can be. And I talk about this experience all the time, but what made me truly interested in becoming a filmmaker and a storyteller were these women from Kosovo who were upset with journalists who were coming into refugee camps, wanting to tell stories about women who've been raped. And they were really insensitive about it. They would go into refugee camps and basically say, you know, I have three days to do the story. I need to speak to women who've been raped. Can you raise your hand if you've been raped? And I was shocked when I heard this, I was completely shocked. But then after that, the women who were, you know, very proudful, they, they did a lot of great work for women and children in the refugee camp. You know, they're, they're Eastern European, you know, were like, you know, not only is this disrespecting what our people are going through, but they say, we fear that at the end of this war, we will no longer be remembered as Kosovar women, but as Kosovar women who've been raped. And I was like, wow. And that made me start looking at all the storylines about global health and development from AIDS in Africa to, you know, refugee, war, conflict. And I realized that it was true. Like the storytelling was very harmful. The, the narratives were very harmful. They were one dimensional. They would exploit people's suffering for, you know, entertainment or news, whatever. And that's not how I, I see the world. I had my own trauma growing up. I had my own um, identity crisis and wanting to change my own narrative because I was often referred to as sort of like the poor girl in a single parent, you know, household. I didn't have a father. I have a whole story about that. But I, I, I knew that, that the realities of people around the world were much more complex and nuanced and not so you know, based on suffering that these news reports and UN documentaries and everything I was watching was sort of focused in. on, And so through a series of experiences that just kind of fell in my lap, I got to sort of learn on the job. I was asked to be a uh, interviewer for uh, my roommate, who's a filmmaker, Julia Black, got this assignment in Brazil. I went with her. My job was basically to interview people, AIDS activists, government officials or whatnot about their fight against the pharmaceutical industry, which was right up my alley because I'm really, you know, I'm an activist that works in the UN NGO space as a filmmaker. So I have all these multitude of, of interests in how I approach my storytelling and my work. And through that, I got another one where I was in Ghana and I just started picking up elements of the craft until I was finally able to get my first film financed um, in part by the UN financed, you know, a sponsorship from the United Nations Population Fund. And that launched me on my career as a filmmaker. So no, it was definitely not planned. I never thought about becoming a filmmaker ever, ever, ever. But on, on reflection now, it's sort of like everything that I did led up to me being able to be this like one person crew. I direct, I produce, I write, I shoot, and I edit my own films. Why? Because as a dancer, so much deals with like pacing and that's the same as editing. You have to know how to pace your edit. Um, I used to draw and paint and that helps framing. I was a science major. So I think that helped me figure out learning how to edit on Avid, you know, before there was Google or YouTube tutorials, I was learning how to edit from a book, you know, and learning how to troubleshoot from a book. So all of this weird angst that I had not being able to figure out what my career trajectory was supposed to be all helped become the person that I am today. It was all necessary for me to do what I do now. I, I actually find a lot of people who are jack of all trades, they, they, 
they're a lot, they're able to pull from a lot of different experiences, a lot of different techniques. You were kind of saying with the dancing was uh, about the timing and with the art and you're just being a creative. So everything that you kind of did was, yep. was self-taught from that aspect. And you kind of piece it together to become, you know, this very accomplished uh, individual. Now, you work with the UN and the um, uh, NGO, and there's a term that you use that I've, I've, I've been looking at a lot that I love is the creative economy and the sustainability sector. How did you go from, you know, going into the war zones to interviewing the people in all these different areas to saying, you know what, there's all these other creatives that have a story to tell or have some type of art form that can help in that social injustice, uh, social injustice realm. Where did you kind of get into that realm where you wanted to bring in the other creatives and kind of bring them into that circle to start developing what's known as that creative economy? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and I should say that, you know, while I was pursuing my pre-med studies, I was still performing and, and, and teaching dance lessons with this hip hop troupe. So I was constantly straddling in my own life, sort of my art, arts related stuff with my academic stuff. And there were two, two things that launched me into engaging different artists, especially performing artists into my, my work. Um, one, I was a, I was a, a teaching artist. I was a, a videographer for a youth poetry organization in New York City called Urban Word. So I was exposed to a lot of young people of color, a lot of young poets, a lot of young hip hop artists or whatnot in New York City. Simultaneously, when I finished my first film that was financed by the UN Population Fund, they asked me, oh, we love this 15 minute film. It's great. Where are you going to show it? CNN, ABC. And I said, no, I'm actually going to jump on the tour bus with the musician whose music is in the film named Zap Mama. She's a Congolese Belgian artist. And I'm going to go around the country and work with uh, Planned Parenthood. It was a maternal health documentary. Planned Parenthood to set up screenings in the different cities on this three and a half week tour. And the woman at the UN looked at me like I was nuts. Like I knew she was not happy. <laughs> she was not happy at all. And, um, and I went ahead and did this three and a half week journey with Zap Mama. And we would do screenings at, you know, the School of Medicine at UCLA during the day. And the singers of Zap Mama, who are all women, African women or women of African descent, would come and, and speak about their personal experiences. I would come in with, you know, my film. There'd be doctors, there'd be public health specialists. So we would create this really interesting discussion from people at different sectors, if you want to call it, talking about maternal health in very different ways. And what I realized is when you combine arts form, like mine, which is film, and Zap Mama's, which is music, you crisscross your audiences. So for example, and a musician said to me, which I thought was really interesting, he's like, you know, our, our art forms are so different. Like you as a filmmaker, your art asks people to sit down and think. He said, and me as a percussionist, ask people to stand up and dance. I was like, perfect. So if you bring the two together, you create that more holistic, nuanced storyline and storytelling that I was talking about. Because at the same time that we're talking about maybe more serious topics, we're appreciating the music or the culture or whatnot to balance that one dimensional storyline that was so problematic in my, in my public health degree. So... 
And then at night during the Zap Mama, we called it the woman tour um, because it was about a maternal health topic. But during at night, I would set up what was essentially a merch table with information about my film, information about the issue, information about the organizations that were my sponsors. And I would kind of, you know, people that wouldn't have known Zap Mama would come because I'm in the public health world. I'm inviting them to the show. They got to appreciate and become fans of this amazing singer who they didn't know. And then I I would be able to distribute information about my film to her fans. So we crisscross fans. And by the end of the tour, I had raised $29,000, I believe, for the UN. We had reached tons of people that the UN doesn't normally t- reach, which are young activists, young people of color, artists or whatnot. And so the, the woman tour is actually quite successful, just not in the way that the UN initially thought I should I should do with my film. So when I came back, that same woman that gave me the side eye was like, can you come into my office? I I have something I want to talk to you about. And she's like, close the door. I close the door and she's like, I owe you an apology. She's like, I didn't get it. She's like, I didn't get it. She's like, but seeing what you did, she's like, it was brilliant. The school things, it was brilliant. And she accompanied me into another meeting where I was asking for funding for another project. And she said, give this filmmaker all that she's asking for, because she did more to raise awareness about the topic that my film was on than my entire media team. So that set the platform for me to not just work as a filmmaker and go out and document these sort of challenging issues affecting people around the world, I would bring in artists wherever I could. I'd bring in uh, poets. I would be in Tanzania and I'd, I'd look to license music from Tanzanian musicians. So this has been the core of my career since 2003, 2004. This is not new. Arts at the UN and creativity, like there's been, you know, I was at the forefront of bringing this and there's been sort of UN policy folks kind of taking what I've done and, and building upon it. So artists at the UN is much, you know, more of a mainstream thing now, much more of a trendy thing. But when I started, it was, I was making it up as I went along completely, but it worked. Like all these accolades that that you say that I have, it's primarily because I was taking different things that didn't seem like they could work together and mashing them together. The arts and the UN mashing them together. Um, and creating something new. Like my career didn't exist when I started it. I created it. And now it's become more mainstream, which is exciting. But when you do when you do things like that, that's where innovation happens. And I think, you know, I won an Emmy for a short film called Biracial Hair. I made the film in two days, three days. Um, it wasn't a technically, you know, crazy film. It's not a long film. It was in the, you know, short sort of media interactivity thing, but it's because I was, I was addressing, you know, racial justice, police brutality, uh, poetry because of my work with the poetry community way back in 2007, 2008, it's become more mainstream now, but it wasn't back in the day. So again, that's why my short film biracial hair, I believe won the Emmy. It wasn't, you know, the, the most amazing film I've ever made, I've ever seen, but it was, it was fresh and it was new for its time. It was the same time that Chris Rock came out with good hair and they actually wanted Uh, to create a screening with both of our films together. Oh, wow. So, so create 2030 may be a recent company, but it's basically just a a name and a face to what you've been doing for the past 15, 20 years. So can you kind of go a little bit? um, So can you go a little bit more in detail exactly what 2030 is and what was its purpose and how, 
Like, what are your steps of kind of integrating all this together and bringing more awareness actually on an international level? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so because I've been working so much with these different artists, I would often get asked to, to bring artists into the UN space. And so my, my, uh, opportunities were getting bigger and bigger in higher and higher level meetings because I would kill any event because I, you know, I, I knew who the youth poets were that would align with sort of the stuff that I'm doing. I knew how to curate. I knew how to bring musicians. I knew where to find artists that would support sort of, you know, the topics I brought in, you know, Baja uh, from the Baja and the Dry Eye crew from Sierra Leone, because uh, we were doing a film and a project on the impact of war on young people. And he's a musician that used music to kind of, you know, influence the rebels to put their weapons down. So I always knew how to tap into authentic creative voices um, my entire career. So I got asked over and over again, we want to do this. We want to do that. I would pitch new ideas. Like instead of me bringing a sound person on my shoot, let me bring a youth poet to run workshops with young people in areas of conflict. They were just like, I mean, their minds were blown. They're like, wow, okay. We're, we're not sure how this is going to go. And, you know, we don't really talk about poetry at the UN, but then I would go and I would kill it. And they'd be like, oh my God, can we pay you to do a poetry toolkit? And I was like, of course, of course. So it was growing and the opportunities were growing bigger. But what I realized is that like at one point the UN actually, this is on a official high level UN video. They called the, t- the name of my of my performance was called Lisa Russell's Spoken Word Poets. And the, you know, high level people are introducing these poets as my poets. And I don't like that. So I realized at some point that that being an individual curator with my name doesn't work in a in a industry that appreciates organizations institutions, whatnot. So that's when I started putting, you know, groups together. First it was mdg5.com, then it was I Sell the Shadow, and now it's Create 2030 to align with the 17 sustainable development goals that the UN is trying to reach by the year 2030. So that's how Create 2030 came about. So technically you kind of created the, the Create 2030 years ago. And I know over the time it's evolved with different names. You were kind of aligning uh, to what you were currently doing, to what you were working with with the UN. But how, what was that process of kind of bringing those different artists together from different places in the world and kind of giving them um, an avenue and an opportunity to actually work with organizations that, in my opinion, needed them? that that creative economy yeah yeah so i yeah i forgot about the creative economy so so to be frank okay let's be frank the artists that i work with them a lot of them are my friends there are people that are in my social circles there are people i hang out with there are people whose shows i go to and sort of like once you're in the know you're kind of you know you get exposed to new folks like you know, a very good friend of mine, Maya Asazena, I was doing a lot of work with her. I met Chesney, who was performing at one of her shows. So it's just sort of, especially in that Brooklyn, you know, artist scene or whatever, I just met people who, who whose art was very authentic to the different struggles they personally experienced. So if, for example, I'm getting asked to curate something around, you know, again, the impact of war on young people, I know singers from different parts of the world who, who whose music 
deals with that specifically. Maya, you know, does a lot around around girls empowerment, women empowerment, domestic violence, because those are personal things that she she talks about and she sings about. So I I developed sort of a reputation at the UN for not just giving artists a platform, but curating very on point, authentic um, performances, workshops or whatnot, because as a curator, I sort of I, I have a a what's like a bag full of 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 um, relevant artists who at any point somebody can say, oh, we're doing this event on climate change. Do you know a climate artist? And like, yeah, I do. I don't have to always train an artist to care about climate. I usually go seeking the artists who are already engaged in those issues. And then what I do is I work with them very closely to ensure that whatever poem they write, whatever song they're singing aligns with sort of the UN uh, communications message that they're trying to come across. So I'm heavily involved in the curation. I don't just grab an artist and put them on stage. And I think, again, that's why I have a reputation for, for, for doing good work, because I straddle these two worlds very authentically. Like I, I know these artists. I'm not just out like putting out a feeler for what artists could fit in here. These are people I've either worked with, I know personally, or who I've, you know, been exposed to their art um, independent of the UN and figured they, they would be a good match. And so, um, yeah, I'm not just a, you know, oh, you need a poet? Okay, here's a poet. No, I, I am very... Um, intentional on who I bring in and for what events. So you work with a, a, a lot of different people, a lot of different industries. Um, before I would have said that this is a niche, but it's very far from a niche. Uh, I was looking, mm. you, you, I, I probably, it'd be best to ask you what that number is, but the amount of funding that goes in the creative uh, economy space is in the billion, billions, if not trillions. I mean, the number is, is astronomical. Yeah. And I know for a fact most artists would have no clue because I didn't until I met you. Uh, what advice would you give someone? Because I believe there's a lot of room for it, for people in this space, but a lot of people don't know about it, so they will never pursue it. What advice would you give someone who you know kind of wants to pursue a career in in that avenue that that you've in a way you've kind of paved. Yeah, so so the creative economy was a term that I was not introduced to until 2018. And what I realized it's a very powerful term for artists to use because it speaks to donors, it speaks to policy people, program people in my world in a language they understand. They understand statistics, they understand metrics, they understand numbers. And it's really hard as an artist to quantify the impact of art. So, you know, I always say, how do you quantify the impact of a painting, right? It's difficult. So for the longest time, I had been promoting artists in sustainable development, artists in the millennial development goals, artists, artists, artists. But I got asked to speak at this very high level conference in Bali in Indonesia in 2018. And it was the first ever world conference on creative economy. And I had no idea how big this conference was until I got asked to, you know, look at my flight 
information and pick my seat. And I'm like, why are the seats all, oh, they're flying me first class from New York City to Bali. This is a big deal. So then I get there and I'm told that I replaced Mohammed bin Salman speaking slot. I was supposed to follow immediately behind the president of Indonesia, but he couldn't make the event. Um, and then Mohammed bin Salman had been asked, I think, not to speak because of the controversy around the assassination of the journalist. But when I got there, I, it was very clear to me that this was going to be a life changing conference for me as well, because I'm all about the language. I joke that I'm multilingual. I speak artist talk and I speak UN talk and I go back and forth between the two. And even though they're very different languages, they're having parallel conversations. So now I have at my, you know, in my hands, a different term, creative economy, which resonates more with the UN, with the NGO world, with economists. And so here I am speaking to a room full of, you know, 1500 um, sheiks, uh, ministers, members of parliament, economists, all these folks talking about the creative economy. So they're my people. They're just talking about it in a different way, using a different language. But it was life changing for me, career changing, because after that, I started really reframing all the work that I do around Create 2030, around my work at the UN, around this concept of creative economy. And what artists should know is that Back in the day, again, my mother was, you know, adamant that I should that having being an artist wasn't a real job, or you know, being a creative wasn't a real job. Well, the creative economy is now one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Um, you know, you can talk about the forty million jobs that are created in the creative industry. You could talk about the two point two five billion dollars in U.S. revenue it generates every year. It's access accessible to people. You don't need a formal education. You can be of any age. You can be of any ethnicity. You can work anywhere in the world and be an artist. So the idea of working in the creative economy is now very lucrative. Um, COVID nineteen, you know kind of took a hit on us. The UN declared 2021 as the international year of creative economy for sustainable development. So I was like, this is my year. This is, this is the year when all my work is going to culminate. And then, you know, COVID. Um, but what I think COVID did reveal is not only how sensitive and delicate the creative industries are, because a lot of artists, including myself, lost work immediately. I mean, immediately. And the future yes. looked very bleak. You know, but at the same time, I think the world got to recognize we wouldn't be able to get through COVID if it weren't for artists, if it weren't for musicians, if it weren't for filmmakers. So it's exposed the delicacy, but also the essentialness of arts. And so I'm what I'm hoping is that as we come out of COVID, like I'm seeing a lot of, you know, news articles of foundations that are basically just giving money to artists. They're not even making it, earmarking it for certain projects or whatever. They're like, we know that in order to stimulate the creative economy, we just have to pay artists. And that has been my struggle for years, decade at the UN, is getting the UN to recognize that artists need to be paid and our intellectual rights need to be compensated. So this is now, you know, it's very exciting to have artists at the UN. A lot of my UN colleagues are kind of doing what I did 10 years ago, right? Bringing artists, poets on stage, performing, whatever. That's, that's easy. I can do that with my eyes closed. Where I'm now is I'm pushing for artist representation in the UN NGO um, sector because without us having 
a say in the policies and programs that affect us. We're now seeing tons of UN arts contests, creative briefs, calls for art that are totally unethical. And it's not that the UN has bad intentions. I don't believe they have bad intentions. I have a lot of good friends at the UN. I've done great work at the UN. But because they don't understand our industry or our industry standards or how we work oftentimes in the gig economy, then you're not creating initiatives that support the creative economy in this historic UN International Year for Creative Economy. So we have people with full-time jobs, big salaries, healthcare, <laughs> nice cars, nice houses, trying to make decisions about initiatives that affect poets in the slums of Nairobi or, you know, filmmakers who work project to project base. It just doesn't fit. So where I am now is I'm continuing to do my creative work. I've pivoted to doing a lot more online digital stuff because of COVID, but I'm also invested in training artists as much as I can on how to work effectively in this UN NGO space and more importantly, how to get paid and monetize their work. So this has been sort of my personal mission for this international year is not to ask always what artists can do for us and for the UN and for the messaging and the issues, but what can we do to build a sort of sustainable and effective creative sector in the UN space? How can we get artists to know how to work in the diplomacy world because it's it is very you know it can be intimidating it can be boring it can be confusing um but if you have somebody who who speaks the un language and knows how to translate it then you can get artists you can get creatives excited about working in the un and i feel like that's sort of my purpose for this year is really creating that bridge between uh working class artists not celebrities not people who are being institutionalized artists you know, who work in the development world and then decided, you know, I want to paint in this or whatever, but really trying to tap into those authentic creative voices and train them on how to be effective and work in the space and build a career in the right. space. So I call it my arts envoy training, like a like an envoy to the UN. Um, and that's now, where my focus has been recently. Now, there's the, the training you were saying uh, in regards to, you know, being more in this space. I know you said this is a space where um, you don't need, uh, specifically need formal training. Obviously we have formal training and with your formal training, you've also had to learn a lot of the things on, on your own, as you say, on the job training. Uh, what are some of the, the, the resources uh, that have kind of helped you along the way outside of your formal education, rather be uh, mentors, books, videos, articles, uh, institutions, what resources have you used that, that you could share with, with people who, who want to learn more about this and how to get into this, 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 uh, this economy? Yeah. So, so I make up a lot of the stuff, the resources that I share, the workshops I do is based on my figuring stuff out. There was no blueprint, no guidelines for me. I didn't have a mentor. I had friends who were filmmakers that greatly influenced my career as a filmmaker. I've had, you know, socially conscious artists that helped me really figure out how to change the narrative of the stories that I was telling. So I have, you know, friends, artist friends in Tanzania that are like, we love when you come to Tanzania, but why is it when you always come to Tanzania, you tell 
the bad parts of Tanzania. And I'm like, well, I work for the UN and I work for, you know, glo- on global health stories. Like, how can I talk about maternal health without showing women suffering? It's like, you can't make films about poor people smiling. That is not the answer. So it's a very, you know, uh, critical time in my career to figure out how to, how to stay relevant, how to stay authentic, responsible, and, and not walk away. There were three times I almost walked away from my career because ethically I couldn't, I didn't have the solution. I couldn't figure out how to do my job where I wasn't frustrated by, you know, the types of storytelling that, that I was kind of, you know, contracted to do, um, but not knowing what the solution was. It's easy to say poverty porn is bad or that we can't be telling one dimensional storylines. It's another thing to understand how to actually change the narrative and how to create more nuanced and and complex stories. And that just took me, you know, doing the work, uh, figuring it out for myself, watching the storytelling sort of um, culture of different industries, figuring out what works. Like in the tech industry, I always compare it to the tech industry. They focus on solutions, not problems. So there's a great example I use of a of a soccer ball that that when played with stores kinetic energy and then there's a, a port where you can put a light and it becomes like a light for kids to do homework at night. So if you're on the African continent, you know that the kids love playing football. So they're playing football all day and then it becomes a light source for them to do homework at night. The story that they tell is not about how many young people in Africa don't have light and drop out of school and get bad grades and go into poverty. The stories they tell is look at how awesome this technology is to solve the problems, including this, 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 and this. Same with socially conscious artists. What I realized is that, you know, working, straddling the, the socially conscious world and the global health and development world, one was based on charity, like global health was charity. It was sort of like, look at how sad it is for these girls who drop out of school. Don't you want to give money, donate to this organization and we can help save these girls. That was like the, the, the narrative was, was to, to use charity to evoke pity. That, that's that type of storytelling. Then you go into sort of the social justice, racial justice, uh, socially conscious artist world, and they don't tell stories that way. They tell stories from a, from a perspective of, of justice. What institutions, what systems are creating these problems that we're dealing with and how can we attack those systems? So it wasn't like, oh, these poor girls, let's, let's do this for these poor girls. It's like, no, why, are we, why is there poverty among these girls in the first place? What systems are intact and how can we then address those systems and fight for for justice um, to change the narrative to one of empowerment? Because when you take the onus off the individual and, oh, you know, this person promotes early marriage. Well, why is early marriage so prevalent? Oftentimes it's it's linked to economic um, inequalities. So why are there, you know, bad cultural practices? Um, you got to, you got to think beyond the 45 year old man that marries the 15 year old girl. That's not where the problem is. It's the system that's perpetuating early marriage is based in poverty, in desperation, um, and, and cultural norms oftentimes exist and patriarchy and, you know, uh, white supremacy, like all of these systems are what causes a lot of problems in our world. So that's where I started to, to understand my role as a, as a filmmaker and where I can say, yes, I am telling stories about places that I don't 
live in or come from, but I'm also a really good storyteller. And so if I do the work and I understand the responsibility that comes with the stories I tell and know how to affect my audience to affect change, then I find that there's a place for me in this storytelling world. And so a lot to a lot of new filmmakers, I oftentimes say it's like, it's not just learning how to pick up a camera and make a film. Like you got to do the internal work to understand your sense of, of, of privilege, your sense of power in relation to the, the people you are making films about and know how to then use that to affect real change. And so it's been, you know, it's been a, you know, being a responsible filmmaker is a moving target. You don't just one day become like an ethical storyteller. It's like you've got to you've got to constantly work on your own, your own personal stuff. And then you've got to work on on, you know, on on how you frame problems, how you frame challenges, how you what kind of emotions you're trying to evoke with your storytelling. So, yeah, I could I could talk all day about this, but but. There's room for artists in this space. And in this, in this, in the with the UN, and uh, you're working in the filmmaking, and you're working with a lot of the dancers and the musicians. Were there any individuals that kind of uh, influenced you down the path of you going, or were there? And it may be people that you've known of, or people that you know personally. Were there people that have kind of uh, directed your path into this field of people that you could point to be like, they were definitely a, a huge part of molding me into the person that I am to be able to do that, the things that you're doing. Yeah. I mean, as I kind of mentioned, like my career trajectory was like going in a million different directions. I was so confused and had a lot of angst over what I was supposed to be doing because at an early age, I just felt like I was supposed to be doing something important. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. And so every time my career path or my life took a, a turn, a big turn, it was because I was exposed to somebody who really inspired me. It was like an individual who in 15 minutes, that professor from Harvard changed my life in those half an hour that I sat with the Kosovar women. They changed my life. Working with the poets at Urban Word changed the way I did my storytelling, knowing different artists and observing them, you know, and even I remember I was doing a maybe it was my TEDx talk or something. I don't remember, but everyone's like, you speak like you're a poet. Yeah, because I'm influenced greatly by poets. And even when people are like, oh, what filmmakers inspire you? I was like, yeah, I wasn't, I, I wasn't a film buff. I didn't study film history or cinema history or whatever. I go to like open mics and poetry slams. Like that was my training. That was my thing. And that's what helped me reframe my work in the UN NGO world. And, and why storytelling, you know, was so um, figuring out how to tell stories authentically and powerfully. I just watched young poets who are masterful storytellers in three minutes. They can they can, you know, put together a story that's like make people cry, <laughs> make people like get emotional. That's storytelling. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate of uh, a lot of people coming to your life uh, for a reason and for a season. So I can definitely understand where there's a lot of people that people that to this day, I, I may not even remember offhand 
and some people that were so influential, I'll never forget them until the day I die. But they always had yeah. some some form of impact that kind of directed me down a path where I may not have gone if I didn't meet them. Almost like that that butterfly effect. You never know what someone does yeah. that's going to affect you and what you do is actually going to affect someone else. So in this entire uh, realm of what you've been working on, this is probably probably going to be hard to, 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 to pinpoint one, but, but try. Is there any common myth or there's a one thing that just irked you for all these years and your profession and your field that you would love to just debunk, be like, nah, that's not the way it is? Yes. So, so I think I've seen this a lot and I think it's funny. People are like, you are not what you do. You are not what you do. You are not your job. You are not your career. You're an individual person and you have this and you need work balance. And I'm like, actually, no, like I am what I do, like the things I care about, how I walk in the world, what is important to me, what excites me is what I do. I couldn't do it any other way. And people I feel that often say that are people who have regular jobs, <laughs> like I said, regular jobs, regular employment, and who often criticize people who are on the hustle because they got to be on their hustle to sustain their passion. But I am most certainly what I do. Most certainly. It is a complete reflection of everything that's important to me, what I believe in. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm living like my ideal job. It's challenging at times for, I mean, I can list all the reasons why it's challenging, but I've definitely am somebody who found their purpose in terms of what they, their life is supposed to be focused on. I don't have one big goal. It's like I said, ever changing, but like right now I have my script and my script can literally change people's lives, you know, and that's sort of, what I hope my legacy will be about. There's a saying, um, you know, if you do what you love, you never work another day in your life. Are you at a point where it doesn't even feel like work anymore? Oh, it feels like work. It definitely feels like work. <laughs> and and I, I work very hard. I work every day. I work a lot of times I get frustrated sometimes. I have falling out with people because I feel they take advantage of me. I have conflict with some people because, you know, I'm just like, I'm, I just have my own vision. I work a lot by myself. You know, a lot of people are like, filmmaking is a, is a team sport. It is if you have the right team. But a lot of times I, by default, have had to learn how to do things on my own because I can then shape them in the way that I feel is is important and necessary and i think when you are somebody like i've always joked i'm like i get frustrated because people with more money or celebrities or whatever will come in take what i'm doing do it at a much higher level and then get all the credit for it and i'm like wait but i've been doing that for 10 years you know <laughs> um and so but my friend uh Lavisa said something that was really helpful for me. She's like, you know, you're always two steps ahead of everybody else. You're always going to come up with new creative ideas or whatnot. Like that's your lane. And when you're somebody who's ahead of the, of the, of the game, you may not always ride the benefits of when that thing becomes really popular because by them, that point you're ready to move on. Or like, I don't 
I don't want to do the arts at the UN thing because it's trendy. And then I see how some UN people are doing it. And I was like, this is not, this isn't it. Like, this isn't, this isn't the right way. And then I want to like do something a little bit different, you know? So I think I'll always be evolving in terms of, of what I do to stay away from getting caught in that, like, you know, trendy zone and always because there's new ways to do things. I'm always, you know, I do workshops, for example, every August and September because I learn stuff throughout the year that I want to share, right? My craft evolves. So, yeah, so I, you know. So. Yeah, that's all. This is, kind of, this, this is kind of where I like to uh, switch it up a little bit. Um, if we could switch places and you were the interviewer and I was the interviewee, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would have liked me to ask you? Or is there anything that you would have liked to ask me? That's so funny because that's how I end every single one of my interviews when I'm making a film. That's exactly <laughs> the question I always ask. That's a good question. Um, that's a very good question. Let me think. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I'm biased because I read, you know, some of the work that you've done and, and the question about, you know, I forget, like, what is your darkest moment in your career? That's something that a lot of people don't ask, but it reveals a lot, right? It's like having a career 20 something year career. It's not all about the highs. There's a lot of lows. And so, yeah, I thought that was a really, really good question to ask. So you want to know what my darkest moment was and how I overcame it? Because that's actually a very interesting story. Yeah. Um, so yep. it was 2005, 2006. Uh, at the time, I was um, living. I lived in a bunch of different apartments, and I found that uh, uh, an aunt of mine actually lives in New York, not very far from me in Long Island. So I contacted my mother. And I explained to him, I was like, oh, my aunt such and such is um, is living in New York. I was like, I, I found we found each other. And she, you know, she asked me to, you know, if, if you like, it'd be best, you know, maybe come stay with me. So I said, what do you think? And my mom gave me the, I don't know. I was like, there might be a reason <laughs> that your aunt is, you know, several hundred miles away from the rest of the family. But like I said, maybe you have a different experience from me. I've lived with that lady all my life, and I'm just saying, be careful. So, you know, I moved in, staying with her for a while and working my job and work, you know, helping how I can, cutting the grass, you know, help, helping how I can at the house. So one day I get home from work and she basically tells me, um, you know, I got to talk. Um, I need you to uh, move out because this is a single family home. So to me, that made no sense because I said, well, I'm family, so that shouldn't matter. Family. I said, you know what, it's your right. home. I, I, I respect your opinion. You know, I respect, you know, your decision. So when would you like me to move out? She was like, tomorrow morning. So I literally called my mom. I said, you were right. I shouldn't have came here. I should have stayed where I was. The only issue was I had really nowhere to go. So I took my luggage, uh, I took all my clothes and everything, and I ended up moving, um, not even moving. I was living in the subway for a, a week or so. Uh, just, wow. you know, I would get on the subway, 
And I literally would just ride it back and forth. So I was that guy on the subway. You were wondering, like, why is this guy always? I was that guy. So I ended mm-hmm. up. So it was a dark moment for me because I wasn't working at the time. I mean, well, I lost my job because I had to leave because I couldn't stay there anymore. And I had nowhere to go. So I didn't know what to do next. The way that I overcame that was I ended up finding out that a guy that I ran track with in high school uh, was a very good friend of mine to this day, found out that I was on the subway. and was like, oh, dude, why don't you just come stay with me? So I ended up moving Mm. into his apartment. His apartment literally from his bed, you could touch the kitchen like the stove. Wow. And you yeah, could yeah, touch, yeah. and you could touch the living room couch. It was not meant for two people. So he was going to new school for acting. Uh, so you know he he was never really home. He was doing all his own projects. But what that did was it forced me to figure out how to become creative. And in that year, two thousand five to two thousand six, that was the year that I actually became a, a full time poet. So I ended up performing at the New Rican. I was performing at Bar 13. I was traveling. You know, I was doing performances for celebrities uh, in (laughs) California. I performed for, you know, several people in in their homes that I found out later that they were celebrities like Janine Green, who was like spokesperson for L'Oreal at the time, Wendell Pierce. And I was able to perform for all these different people. So people I started developing a name for myself. That was also the year that I sucked it up and I actually wrote my first book, um, Sparrows Valley, that I had published in 2006. And I ended up hosting my my own event. Uh, That was actually the first project that me and Chesney did together as a team. We had done projects before, but it was the first project that we had done together. So. Nice. It was very difficult for me in regards to I didn't know what my next steps were, but I also needed to make sure that I was able to survive and carry on in my career. And I found a way that I could do it outside of what I was doing before. And that actually became the first step and becoming the the writer that I became. And it also opened up my eyes where I needed to find other ways of creating income. And that was when I started to use my technical background from college and finally started pursuing my career in the tech field. So now is that moment to shine. I like to give um, every one of my guests a a moment to kind of speak about some of the projects that you're working on in the future. Uh, how people can connect with you, how people can reach out to you potentially to you know, work together or how you, know, you can help each other in this creative economy space or working with the UN or can help you with Create uh, 2030. Sure. Um, so uh, there's maybe two or three things that, that are big right now for me. Uh, one is I sort of mentioned this Arts Envoy training, and I'm transitioning into doing a lot of online stuff. So I'm going to create video tutorials, do workbooks, do ebooks, that kind of stuff, because um, I've been piloting uh, my training program with a few artists and it's gone well. But I want to make it more accessible to people. So I'm creating sort of a whole online comprehensive training for artists. Uh, who want to work at the intersection of creative economy and sustainable development. 
So that's one thing. Um, secondly, I've been racking my brain in terms of figuring out how to engage artists in a very big UN summit that's coming up called the Food Systems Summit. And food systems is kind of an academic-y kind of term. And I've been to a couple of meetings where I'm like, if I bring artists into the space right now, I will, I will lose them. So I'm having... Um, I'm launching what's called a creator studio, which I'm super excited about, where I'm going to house rights-free music, beats, photographs, video clips for artists to be able to take and create new artwork. And we're going to have teaching artists um, come in and, and do teaching, you know, workshops on creative workshops on poetry, uh, storytelling, music, whatever, whatever. Uh, we're talking to Jairobi White from A Tribe Called Quest to come mm-hmm. in and talk about his work as a chef. And so it's super exciting. I, I've, I've created a space where it's mimicking sort of a studio space, a creator studio. Um, and so I'm giving, you know, assets to artists to be able to play with and mix around and create new artwork. And then understanding again that artists are struggling right now with COVID, the next part of that is to going to be housing, you know, select pieces of this artwork to license to food systems organizations to pay artists to be able to use their content in their in their programs. So, for example, if there's an incredible painting about, you know, migrant workers, for example, um, a migrant workers association might say, oh, we'd love to pay the artist twenty five dollars, fifty dollars, one hundred dollars, whatever, to be able to use that painting in our newsletter. Um, so it's sort of like a 360 program where I'm providing skills training to creative professionals or young artists who, who want to work in the creative industry, creating content for UNNGO agencies, and then also creating a, a avenue for artists to monetize their work. So this is also coming up in September, October. Um, I have a couple of directing gigs that I just got that I'm super excited about. I might be going to Ethiopia soon to do a film about child marriage and also working with an artist in Denmark to do a piece on climate change, a short film on climate change. And then my big, big, big thing is I've been working on a script for almost 10 years about a Black Panther who lives in exile in Tanzania named Pete O'Neill. And I wrote his story in the context of a fictional Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And my script has done super, super well. It's placed in the very prestigious Academy uh, Screenwriting Fellowship Program called The Nickel. It has placed in a lot of other screenwriting um, Contest And it's exciting because it's my first script. I have a producer who's worked with Spike Lee, Danny Glover. Um, he was a producer for a Huey P. Newton story. I'm putting all the elements together to to write and direct, I hope, my first feature film. And if I don't direct it, then I at least get to work with a, a, you know, a high profile director. So that's sort of where my focus is right now. I'm living in Mombasa, Kenya, having a blast, figuring out if I'm going to actually stay here because I just found an apartment across from the beach for $350 a month. So, um, yeah, trying to, you know, be a remote worker, still continue my creative work. I'm meeting and working with a lot of amazing Mombasa artists, Kenyan artists, Tanzanian artists. And that's also exciting because to me, it feels like where I was in Brooklyn in 2006, 2007, you know, working with these young poets who are on the rise, musicians, DJs or whatever. It's the same vibe here. So 
Yeah, that's a probably a long answer to your question, but I'm excited about a lot of the things that are in the works right awesome. now. Awesome. And, and, and how can uh, people connect with you? So I'm all over social media, um, Lisa Russell Film, F-I-L-M, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm up to my 5,000 limit on Facebook, so that's not really a great place to find me. I'm on LinkedIn, Lisa Russell Films with an S. Um, my websites are lisarussellfilms.com and create2030.org. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, if you if you're on social media, you'll see I'm, I'm pretty active on social media, especially Instagram. Everyone has uh, their 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 moment where they, they just don't want to do it anymore or they, they question if they can do it or if they should continue down the path that they're going. Uh, was there any moment in your journey, like that darkest moment that, that kind of sticks out in your head in your journey? And how did you cope and overcome that moment? Yeah, so so I would say the darkest point of my journey happened when one of the young poets that I worked with got broiled up into like a pretty complex legal situation um, regarding a younger poet. Um, And I got pulled into it because I was close to the male poet and I worked very hard to make sure that he didn't go, he wasn't forced into the system. And I did everything from finding him the right attorney to showing up at the courthouse with $5,000 in my bag to pay to bail him out. And it was a highly sensitive, highly um, dramatic situation and split sort of the poetry community into different pieces where people took one side or the other. And I took the side of not wanting to put a young black poet in the system. And although I was one of the few people who actually knew all the evidence of this case, um, that I took the time to, to really, you know, understand what had happened. And yeah, you know, there was, there was some moments I fought back against people because they attacked me. They attacked my character. I got physical threats. I was blacklisted. I got, you know, I, I, I was hurt by the community that I thought I was, you know, a, a strong part of. I would film these poets for free. I would go to their events. I would support them. We did projects together. And then all of a sudden I was sort of blacklisted and called like a rape apologist and that I exploit people and I do this and I do that. And like, in terms of like a, a character slaughter that they, they came after me and, and, you know, they, they came after me and that was really hurt, hurtful for me because one, I was like, you know, I got shunned by and and blacklisted. I got threatened. My character was was challenged. And I was like, if you just took the time to actually sit and talk to me and listen to what I have to say, you may not demonize me so much. And so I had to walk away from an organization and a community that I was completely invested in. And how did I overcome it? I continued to just do the work that I knew I needed to do. And I'm hoping I always said to to the people who came after me, I said, my door is always open. If you want to have a conversation and not 
fight me or criticize me or come at me because that also makes me fight back. Like I'm not somebody that just takes it and was whatever. Like I came back and then what would they do? They would screenshot the stuff that I said, put it online and then not, not own up to the rest of the conversation. I was like, well, I'm not going to play this petty stuff. So you want to, you want to judge me on that? Go ahead. So, you know, I'm just hoping that, you know, even with the, the theme of my script that at some point in the future, there will be a opportunity to explain myself, to to talk about why I chose this, you know, unpopular path to support this young poet and what I think the responsibility is when you are working as a mentor with young people of color in New York City. So I had to take a big, you know, I it hurt me a lot. It was just like, wow, you 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 think so low of me that you won't even like listen to what I have to say. You won't call me up. You claim to be about community, about racial justice. And yet you're trying to throw somebody who has been a part of this community forever under the bus. Like, so, yeah, so that was that was probably the most painful part of my career. I've overcome it. I've worked with other folks and, you know, I still bear the brunt of this like bad reputation um, because they, they will come after people who work with me and be like, oh, you still work with her? You still talk with her? And it's like, let my work speak for itself. You don't like my work. You don't like me because you think certain things. Well, let my work speak for itself because I do good work. And I am consistent. I've done the same stuff. I've approached it the same way. Um, and you want to, you know, continue to blacklist me? Go ahead. But, um, you know, it's made me more protective. It's made me withdraw a bit. And that's sad. But, you know, I continued. I, I survived. Um, and I would, if faced with the same situation, I would do the exact same thing that I did because I believe what was happening to this to this young poet um, was was not fair and was basically just a reflection of this young girl not wanting to be caught having feelings for a man, you know, that was a little bit older than she was. Um, and having her, her very overprotective mother see how she, you know, kind of what, what she was, what she was embarking on. But, um, yeah, yeah, that, that was the darkest part of probably my, my career. Was this in, you say it was 2006, 2007? No, no, no. This was more like 2010, 2011, 2012, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Cause I I actually had, um, I, I was in, I was very deep rooted in the poetry community. And I had a very different, similar experience. I'm not gonna say similar situation uh, in in the poetry community. And there were some people who were 100% behind me because they understood my character. And they said, yo, there's no way that James and Chesney and the other people that were working on uh, the event. So basically what happened was there was an event that I, I had, uh, organized uh it was it was beatboxers poets rappers uh tap dancers uh we had djs and it was a dancers it was it was this huge event me and chesney had organized and i wasn't making a single penny from it it was basically i was Mm -hmm. organizing this event to try to get uh more exposure to a lot of uh poets because I was so in love with it and with, with the entire community. When yeah. I, what I hadn't realized was there were some people 
And this is this is just how every industry works. There are going to be some people that are not going to be happy for your success. And I had developed a, a name for myself in a very, very short period of time. And there were some people who were not very excited about what I was doing. So what happened was I created the event. No one did any promotion. I was paying uh, some poets to promote from flyers and stuff that I created. They weren't giving any of them out. So the only people that came to the event were people that myself and Chesney had invited to the event. Mm. And then people who had walked by who saw that the event was going on. But there were some people who were in the venue that I didn't know were part of that group that weren't very ex happy about what I was trying to do because I, they thought I was trying to expose the community where I was trying to explain, you were the only guys getting paid for this event. I didn't receive a dollar of anything. I was spending the money that I didn't have to make sure that it was a success and pulling strings, trying to get people to, some people performed for free that were much bigger names than the people that were upset. After that event happened, there were people that made a scene at the doors. So a lot of people didn't want to go in the event. I spent the next several weeks trying to pay people uh, who performed. Be, and some mm -hmm. people were like, you know, they gave, it, gave me the time. And what happened after that event was when I started going to venues, there were people who were threatening me at the door of venues that I normally went to. There were people who blacklisted me. So yeah. I completely understand. And, and it was almost like I thought it was such a deep rooted community. And there are there were a lot of people who were so deep rooted. They were like James or Will at the time. I'm 100 percent behind you. Whatever you do, I rock with you. I mess with you. I'm doing the event. If you need a couple months to pay me back, I get it. And then there were some people were saying at the door, threat, literally threatening me. And I was like, you didn't help me promote the event for an event that you were performing. I'm trying my best to create this income to pay you guys off. I said, just give me a little bit of time. I'll make sure that I pay everyone. And that basically kind of turned me away from poetry where I continued mm -hmm. to write. But I left that community for over a decade before I ever went back to one of those venues that I went to as even, yeah. a spec, as even a spectator. So thank you to those guys out there. There were people like Shaka Campbell and Ovius Maximus. And there were some Ovi. people in that community. Yeah. Yep. There were Oh, you know who I'm speaking about? No, I know oh, Ovi. Yes. Oh yeah. So Ovi, he was, he was incredible. So there were, there yeah. were some people in that community who were, what you saw at face value was who they were. And I respect them to this day that they, they, they left a good enough taste in my mouth that I've never shunned the entire community. And I just realized that there are always going to be some bad eggs in whatever you decide to do. Well, and it's also like, I don't know, it's just a, 
you know, there was a lot of hypocrisy. Like I I remember filming this one urban word slam and, and the, the headlining poet or the MC was like in the, in the slide of Trump, we need to come together and, and, you know, the battles are bigger than all of us and everything. And then she was so nasty to me. She was so nasty to me when I was trying to talk to her about filming, filming her. And then it's like, you know, they're, they're bullies. Like they gang up on people and, you know, and then on stage, they're talking about all this, like, community and this and that. And I, I can see right through it. So I'm like, all right, well, you know what? I judge people on how they treat me. I'm sure a lot of you are only being nasty to me because of whatever this reputation thing and the slander that you want to use against me. But I've, you know, a lot of these people I've never done anything bad to, but they don't want to associate with me. They, they talk badly about me. They, they try to gossip about me. And I'm just like, you know, I don't know. Like in the end, like I joke that if I ever win an Oscar, I'm going to have a no thank you speech and I'm going to call out every single (laughs) person that is a hypocrite. But even if I don't, you know, time reveals all truth. So I'm hoping that at some point there's going to be an opportunity for us to get to the bottom of this and heal from it because it was very traumatizing to the poet, to me, to other people, you know, caught in the middle, um, it's it it was just so so such a bad way to deal with with a problem and you know i own that i didn't deal with it perfectly i what i said was misconstrued construed by the the young girl's mother um but she also did some nasty things back and so it it was a it was a battle and one um, of the one of the main but he got off that. with no he got off with no charges he had to do program stuff or whatever be, not because you know I worked the system or whatever but because if you actually see what's in the case if you actually see the evidence you know there was no sexual intercourse there was no whatever there's just a lot of of details and and information which is the reason why the judge didn't convict him yeah, and one of the kind of main takeaways of, you know, why I, w- I wanted to piggyback on what you were saying is anytime you decide to do anything, rather be, you know, good intentions, something that that's supposed to go beyond who we are as people and make, you know, real change, there's always going to be someone or part of that organization that, or not that organization, that community. Haters. That, <laughs> yeah. The haters that, that may not be 100% behind what you're doing. Those are the people you, you, you literally cannot base your future on what haters say. You just have to stick yeah. to your guns and stick to what you believe. And people are going to be people. It's, that's, that's, that's the great thing about people is that they're yeah. people. And the bad thing about people is that they're people. So, <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's just one of those things you, you, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and move on and learn from it, but also don't take it to heart so yeah. that it stops you from doing the things that you know are right for yourself and for what you're doing. Yeah. So in that, no, and I'm I would, sure that many of them are mad, mad, mad when they see all the stuff that I'm, I'm doing and succeeding in, you know what I mean? I'm sure it makes them so mad. And if my script does well, I'm sure they're going to be so mad, but I just kept moving. You're not going to you're not going to block me from my purpose. Absolutely. And in that, I would I definitely want to say thank you for coming on the show. I've actually been uh, I've wanted you on the show for I know it's only, you know, a few episodes in. But when I first started the podcast, I was creating a list of people in my mind that I had to have on the show. 
and just from your accomplishments and your and just knowing uh, learning you over the past what is it when did I meet you? Was it maybe a, a year couple or so? Years. Through Chesson? Yeah. yeah, a couple years. Uh, oh, actually, it was a couple years because you worked with me with Majavi, uh, yes. working with you. That I, I thank Chesney all the time for introducing us. That was like one of the one of the, the, the best blessings that he's blessed me with in regards to yeah, to, my, to, to, to my network. So thank you yes. for coming on the show. Thank um, you for having me. Absolutely. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for this episode of In the Woods. Be sure to sign up to our email list at moreinthewoods.com. That's more, M-O-O-R-E, in the woods, so that you don't miss our next episode. And follow us at, or follow me at William Moore, the author on Instagram. And I'm James Woods, also known as William Moore. Thank you for listening.